0: Father, as we come before You this morning, as we lift up our hearts again to You in worship, as now we pause to listen to Your Word, we thank You that no eye has seen and no ear has heard. No mind can ever imagine what God has prepared for those who loved Him. So Father, as we come before You, we pray that You will open our eyes to see Your grace and Your beauty. That our ears will be open, that we will not have stiff ears, that are willing to yield to you; that our minds will be open to understand and to love to you afresh again through your scriptures. And so, Father, we pray that this may be a Holy Spirit moment, as your Spirit takes control of the next few minutes as we spend time thinking about your word through the book of Ezra. We ask this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. If you go to Clark and Washington Streets in downtown Chicago, you'll find yourself surrounded by huge and tall buildings. Most of these buildings are either government offices or attorney offices. This is because Cook County and US District Courts are all there, and you'll run into throngs of white-colored government officials or lawyers carrying their briefcases running around. Yet as you go to the southeastern corner of Clark and Washington streets, the whole scenery suddenly changes. There is a church in the middle of the hustle and bustle of Chicago's metropolitan downtown. What is unique about this church is that it's the tallest church in the entire world. The Chicago Temple building is in fact are 173 meters tall or 568 foot tall and it isn't your typical church. Twenty-three stories of the building are dedicated to religious and office use. The building itself houses three centuries. Century 1 is located at its ground floor, which is the biggest sanctuary in the building. It can seat up to a thousand people. Century 2 is on its first level, known as the Dixon Chapel. And then you have the 3rd century, which is right up at the penthouse of the building called the Sky Chapel. It's the smallest of the three centuries, and it can only sit about 30 people. The Sky Chapel, which is at the top of this huge building and its penthouse position, was created in 1952 as a gift from the Walgreen family. The Walgreen family is a very famous uh, pharmacy shop, uh, a chain grocery uh, trading pharmacy shop across the U.S. And At about 400 feet high above the ground, it's considered the world's highest place of worship. And the chapel itself consists of 16 glass windows, four scenes depicting scenes from the Old Testament, four from the life of Jesus, four from the Christian church and the Old World, and then the four from the New World. And there is a carved wooden altar that depicts Jesus overlooking the city of Chicago. Uh, and, then the, and then there is an altar that stands there, which the, uh, uh, is a beautifully casted altar, uh, beautifully situated there at the top of the city of Chicago. These days, if you go to the Sky Chapel, you can still go there every day of the week except Mondays, and they will tours. they will bring you throughout this building and to see the, sky, the beautiful Sky Chapel. But what really fascinates me about this building, this building, this church building, is that it's in the middle of a very large secular world where humanism seems to reign supreme. There stands a place, a sacred space of worship. Even in the midst of the most concrete jungle, there is this longing of people for worship. Even in the midst of this busy city of Chicago, where the government buildings are everywhere, where legal people are everywhere, where everything is bustling and happening, there is still the longing for serenity. There is still a longing for God in this city itself. There is a desire to be with Jesus. In fact, this is a primal call that God has placed in us, that regardless of where we go, there is this longing for the transcendent. You may remember last year when the Notre Dame Cathedral was destroyed by the fires. What amazes me is that many people petitioned to save the cathedral. There were Roman Catholics, as we expected of course, and then there were Protestants. But what I least expected was that even atheists, people who do not believe in God, joined in the petition to restore this cathedral towards glory. I was surprised when the Gospel Coalition published an article that even says that the atheists were part of this petition to restore this grand cathedral. Why? Even people who claim To deny the existence of God, there is still that longing for sacred space, a longing for the transcendent. We are made for God. Regardless of how you try to suppress that desire, there is always still that longing to connect with God. We see this very clearly in Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. We are working our way through a series of sermons on the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, is a perfect example of this primal desire to connect with God in this play. Ezra has been telling us that a group of returnees, the Jewish returnees, have returned from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild God's temple. And chapter 2 ends with the returnees finally arriving in Jerusalem. And we read in the last verse of chapter 2 in verse 17 that the priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants all settled in their towns along with the other people and the rest of Israel settled in their towns. So they have just returned and upon arrival in Jerusalem, Instead of building their homes first, instead of reconstructing the roads, instead of looking at where their food supplies would come, instead of setting up their own government systems first, the first thing that the returnees do is that they wanted to connect with God. They want to connect with God. So chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 begins with, with the author of Ezra and Nehemiah telling us that the first thing the returnees uh, uh, do here is that they try to build an altar to God. An altar so that they can connect in worship of God. So let's look at Ezra chapter 3 verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites, or more literally the sons of Israel, had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, who was the priest, the son of Josedech, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shethiah, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel. They begin to build this altar so they can connect with God to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance to what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. God. The people here are keen to build an altar because it's also, as verse 1 tells us, the seventh month. In the Hebrew calendar, the seventh month, or the month of Tishri, which is around September to October in our calendar, is the most important month of the year. Why? It's the month they celebrate the three great feasts of Israel, starting with the Feast of the Trumpets followed by the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, and then ending with the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's most fascinating that we do not read of the Jews, the returning Jews here celebrating the Feast of the Trumpets, or Yom Kippur. Or the Day of Atonement. But we are told specifically at verse 4 that after they built this temple, they celebrated what? The Feast of the Tabernacles. They wanted to connect with God. And the first thing that they did they do together here is that they celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles on the seventh month. So verse 4. that in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of the tabernacles. With the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. Why are we told by the author here of Ezra and Nehemiah that the people celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles and not the other two feasts? What is so special about the Feast of the Tabernacles? And what is so special about this feast to us today? Two things. Two reasons. Number one. The Feast of the Tabernacles celebrate the generosity of God's presence. The generosity of God's presence. The Feast of the Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of the Ingathering, or sometimes in the Bible it's only called the Feast, the Feast, is about a seven or eight day festival. It's a very unique festival because this is the only time where the Jews get to live in booths they get to live in little tents made out of palm branches and leaves and all kinds of other leaves that they can use. Uh, And they use willows, leaves, uh, fruit tree leaves and things like that. And they will build up little tents. So it's like little tree houses, except that these tree houses are not situated on top of trees, but they're on the ground. And there they get to live in those little tree houses for six, seven to eight days. I remember when I was young, uh, there was a tree house in our school. It was one of the most favorite spots for the children because children just love tree houses. So, how cool is it that uh, across Jerusalem you will see on its fields all these uh, little tree houses on the ground made up of palm branches and fruit tree leaves and the people all living inside of them? Leviticus tells us, uh, Levit- this, Leviticus tells us in chapter 21, verses 42 and 43, live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native born Israels are to live in such shelters, and your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Later Jewish traditions even tell us that some of these booths have been also decorated with. Um, seasoned fruits and produce so even in your uh, tents uh, are made up of tree branches and leaves there are fruits inside where you can eat liberally don't even have to get out of your tent and you'll still be satisfied. what does that all remind you of living like in a garden where there is abundant fruit everywhere why does God? Teach them to do this kind of a feast. It reminds us of Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are still living in the Garden of Eden. And they are surrounded by greenery everywhere. And God gave them, God gives them um, fruit trees so that they can enjoy. It's a reminder of God recreating Israel so that they become. Uh, they relive back to the Garden of Eden. It's a new creation that God will do. That God did not just bring Israel out of Egypt, but God brings them out so that he can recreate a new creation through them where they relived in the Garden of Eden where God is there. And one of the great blessings about Eden is what? God strolls in the garden with man and women, And God is there amongst them as they built their little tree houses and shelters on the ground. God strolls amongst them just like he used to stroll with Adam and Eve in the garden. So why is it that the returning Jews in the book of Asherah, the very first thing that they do is to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles? It's God's way of saying, I do not only dwell in the temple, but I dwell amongst you. As you return to Jerusalem, as you return back home after your period of exile, where am I? I'm amongst you. I'm not just in your temple, but amongst you. I'm strolling in your midst, and you do not need to fear. Just like in the Garden of Eden where I used to walk with Adam and Eve, now I walk with you. And that's why at verse 3 we tell us, the the, the author of Ezra and Nehemiah tells us, despite their fear of people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. And even though there was opposition, there was this opposition everywhere to stop them, from returning, to stop them from rebuilding Jerusalem. They were not fearful, they're not fearful. Why are they not fearful? Because of the Feast of Tabernacles, because the Feast of the Tabernacles reminds them, God walks amongst them. And there is a generosity of God's presence. God is not just restricted in a small corner, but He walks amongst them. There is this generosity of God's presence that expels fear. One of the most haunting stories I've ever read is by Dutch writer Hans Christian Andersen. Hans Christian Andersen in the year 1845 uh, wrote a story called The Little Match Girl. It's about the story of a little girl selling matches on New Year's Eve and when this little girl leaves home she only has uh, with her Slippers that her mother uh, once wore. And because the slippers were far too big for her, she kept tripping. And as a result, they, f- they fell off. And one boy runs around and stole it from her. And it's a cold winter evening. She wants to go home, but she has to sell the matches she was supposed to sell. And uh, uh, she knows that if she returns without selling the matches, matches, uh, matches that her father will beat her. So she's cold with the snow falling all around her. She cultures around the corner of her home. She lights one of the match and with each flame that she lights, she huddles around and she begins to imagine with each match light, uh, the cooked food, what it means to gather around a hot stove on New Year's Eve of the food that she could have. She begins to imagine and then the light goes off. She lights another match, and she now sees um, a goose, uh, roasted goose goose on the stove. She imagines the family of warmth around her, and then the match goes off. The little girl matches the lights another match, and this time she imagines a Christmas tree at home, what what joy would be to celebrate and uh, Christmas and to be around family. And then the match goes off again. And then she lights another match. And this time she sees her grandmother beckoning and waving to her. And she tells the grandmother of her pain and her loneliness. And she tells grandma, Grandma, don't leave me. Take me with you. And just as uh, she says that, uh, her match. Uh, uh, was about to be extinguished. So she lights again so that grandma will not disappear. And then she lights another one so that grandma will still be there. She lights another one and she, and she keeps lighting up all her matches. The next morning, the people found finds this girl slumped across the house, uh, across the road. She was, she was already dead. She tried to keep herself awake through the night by lighting all her matches so that grandma will not disappear. But until the end, grandma disappeared and she froze to death. God's presence is not like the grandma in this story, that she only appears with each lighted match and then she disappears when the match is gone. God is with us all the time. He has begun the new work of new creation in us So that he walks amongst us in our midst, so that we can feel his presence and know that he is there with us. His presence is generous. He's not just restricted to some sacred space somewhere. He's not just restricted to certain people and groups of people. He's not like grandma of this little girl that only appears with the light, light that matches light, and disappears when the fire is gone. No, God is with us, and He is generous with His presence, and we do not need to fear. And that's what the Ezra is trying to tell his people. That, yes, there may be opposition that will come. People may become jealous and they may be filled with hatred when you build, rebuild Jerusalem. But don't be afraid when you worship, when you gather in God's presence. He is with us despite the fear they continue because they believe in the generosity of God's presence. But the Feast of the Tabernacles not only reminds us of the generos- generosity of God's presence, so reminds us of the generosity of God's gifts. Generosity of God's gifts. In preparation of the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Jews had to tithe. That is, they have to save up 10% of their produce, of their income, throughout the year. So they're required to bring to these uh, three great feasts every year, 10% of their produce. So many of them will bring 10% of their cattle, land, vegetables and so forth to God. If you live too far away from Jerusalem, the book of Deuteronomy tells us that you can exchange these produce for silver and that you can bring the silver to Jerusalem and there you must purchase um, all kinds of cattle, sheep, wine, fermented drink, in fact, anything you want so that on the feasts of the tabernacles, You not only live in these um, uh, huts, uh, these huts, but you also feast. It's a joyous feast. It's the party of all parties, whereby you have all kinds of food, You you have all kinds of meat, you have all kinds of wine, and you have a feast, you have a joyous feast, you indulge yourself in food, remembering that God is a generous God. And Deuteronomy chapter 14 verses 22 to 29 tells us that they all not only feast, but they also need to remember their Levites, their pastors. They also need to remember their foreigners and the fatherless, that to share with the priests, with, them, with the foreigners, with the fatherless, their bread, their lamb, their wine. That was, it's always a big celebration, the party of all parties. Moreover, every day out of this eight days of the Feast of, the, of Tabernacles, animals have to be sacrificed. And the Bible in Numbers chapter 29, verses 30, 12 to 34, spells out uh, the numbers of animals to be sacrificed and the types of animals to be sacrificed. And, uh, but if you add all the animals to be sacrificed up, uh, throughout this entire feast of eight days, That to sacrifice 70 animals, seven zero. Is 70 significant? I think it is, because 70 in Genesis chapter 10 is the number of the nations. The Feast of the Tabernacles is not just a feast for the Jews to indulge themselves and to have fun, but it is also God's way of reaching out to the nations, to the foreigners, out there, and saying that one day my presence will so overfill in power that there will be rejoicing. It's God's generosity towards the nations that God's gift to the nation that He is indeed the provider. So we read here in chapter three, verse seven of Ezra, that not only did the Jews, not only do the Jews celebrate this feast together. But they also obey what the scripture said. Because throughout this passage, we always say, we always hear the phrase, as it is written, as it is written, being repeated. So, what do they do? In chapter 3, verse 7. We read, then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and they gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they could bring set up by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. Not only do the Jews indulge themselves and celebrate, but the Bible tells us clearly that they even gave money, to the masons and the carpenters, and they gave their food and drink, just like uh, they've been commanded in the book of Numbers, and all of all to the foreigners in Sidon and Tyre. What does this have to say to us? Our God is indeed a generous God, when He draws us to worship, when He calls us out of our busy schedules, when He places this urge within us, this primal core within us, urging us to worship. And when we do come to worship, when we do bring our gifts to Him, when we do bring our tithes to Him, when we do bring all the things that are precious to Him, God takes it and multiplies it and distributes them even to the foreigners and the people who do not know Him. Because God is a God who is very generous in His gifts. Not only in His presence, but in His gifts. That God wants to take care of even the foreigners and bring them into worship too. That's why He included the carpenters and the masons, from the uh, from from foreign lands. That's why he includes the people from Tyre and si- uh, uh, from Sidon and Tyre, so that they can all be part of this building process of the temple of God. God is indeed a generous God. When you give to God your time in worship, when you give to God your gifts, your money to the pastors, to the fatherless to the church. God never takes them for granted. In fact, you can never outgive God. He takes them, multiplies them, and blesses people with what we put on his altar. In 2015, we lost one of the greatest preachers of all time. His name was Dr. Garner C. Taylor. Dr. Taylor was a preacher in a class of his own. He was a mentor of some of God's greatest servants. He was a mentor to uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. He was a mentor to James Earl Massey and many other great preachers of the past. His influence on the African-American church, uh, in fact, is paramount. Towards the end of his life and just before ill-health finally took him away into a convalescent home, Dr. Taylor would often spend time uh, coming to worship in, uh, and visit Shaw Divinity School, a seminary not far from his home in North Carolina. He, despite his busy schedule, despite his reputation as one of the best preachers, he would quietly and without announcement slip into the chapel services of this seminary, and he would join the students in worship. And though many of the sermons he would hear in that chapel would not hold a candle to his, but yet Dr. Taylor humbly listened. He sang the songs of worship with the students. He prayed with the students. One day, one of his mentee knew that uh, Dr. Taylor was in the chapel and he was supposed to be preaching, so he was a little bit apprehensive. After the service, the mentee was slightly embarrassed, and he kept apologizing to Dr. Taylor for his poorly prepared sermon, to which Dr. Taylor says, don't apologize. I do not come here as a great preacher. I come here as a hungry child waiting to be fed by God. Even though I may be a mentor to the preachers, I still need to worship. Because every time when I come to God to worship, he reminds me again that it is only by his hand I am fed. It's only by his hand that I am fed. God has given and created in us and urged a yearning to worship so that we can come to him with all humility and trust and say to God, it's only by your hand, by your gifts, that I am fed. The Feast of the Tabernacles that Ezra, that the people in Azra's time celebrated is a reminder to them that there may be dangers everywhere. People may try to rip you apart, disappoint you, discourage you, try to bring you down with the cynicism, bring you down with the letters bring you down with all kinds of dirty tricks, but our hands, our hearts are not fed by these people. Our hearts are fed by the living God. And when we are fed by the living God, we will not be fearful because these people do not owe us. We lives, our lives are in God's hands. We are fed not by these people, but by Him. When we worship, we are reminded that all good things come from Him and that all good things He will provide for those of us who come to Him. We may not be rich and prosperous, but we know that we'll be well taken care of. We may not be spared from persecution, hurts, and sickness, but we know that He is there. His presence is generous, that He will be with us, and His presence, and His providence, and His provision will be enough. Father as we come before you, in this holy moment when the Spirit speaks so powerfully to us, we thank you that you have place in our hearts a desire for the divine. Because if you have not placed in our hearts a desire for you, we will go into the world and allow ourselves to be fed by the things of this world that will ultimately rip us apart, that will ultimately disappoint us that will ultimately lead us to death. But you have placed this urge in our hearts so that we will look for you, that we will look for Jesus and know that he is generous in his presence, is generous in his gifts, that when we eat out of his hands, we will not fear. Father, forgive us when we do not trust in your Son. Forgive us when we do not believe that you are enough. Forgive us, Lord God, when we do not cry out to you until things get bad. Forgive us when in times of goodness we do not know how to give thanks to you. Forgive us in times of trials we blamed you and get upset and get worried. Father, out of your hands we eat, and when we eat out of your hands, we will never let. You are our shepherd, and we shall not be in